It's Tuesday, December 15th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The worst fears of public health experts came true after Thanksgiving travel. Rising COVID cases, reduced ICU bed capacity, and more lockdown. Even though vaccines are currently rolling out, health officials are worried about Christmas and New Year celebrations. They are already urging caution about traveling, but as we saw already, many people will probably not follow that advice. There were some lessons learned from the last time. Officials need better messaging and need to provide better testing as they will definitely see a rush. Brittany Shamus, reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for more. Next, in-person voting has begun Monday in Georgia for the Senate runoff election. This is an important election in that it will determine the control of the Senate. It will be tough for Democrats, but it is achievable. Also in Georgia, President Trump is continuing a very public fight with Republican Governor Brian Kemp. The bad blood between these two goes back some time, but the attacks have increased after Kemp refused to back the president's assertion that the election was stolen. Amy Gardner, national political reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for the feud between Trump and Georgia's governor. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. If you're able to stay home, stay home. Just be smart and stay apart. Joining us now is Brittany Shamus, reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Brittany. Thanks for having me on. I wanted to talk about some of the worries that public health experts have right now coming into Christmas and New Year's. Thanksgiving came and went, and the worst fears of the public health experts happened. Huge increases of coronavirus cases. We saw reduced ICU bed capacity, more lockdowns in cities across the country. And even though the vaccine is being rolled out right now, it could take some time to get everybody vaccinated. So these public health experts are scared about travel during Christmas and New Year's. It's coming up, and I'm sure they're going to urge people again to not travel so we don't see huge spikes in cases. So this is what they're worried about right now. They have learned some lessons, including that they need better messaging. So, Brittany, tell us a little bit about what we're hearing. So that's exactly right. Like you mentioned, we won't know the exact numbers for, you know, a few weeks here. We won't know the exact impact of the travels people took and, you know, the gatherings for a little while here. But there are some early indications that I think have health experts kind of concerned. Travel by air, it did decline compared to last year, but, you know, you still saw millions of people passing through airports and boarding flights and plenty of people still gathered over the holidays. And so there's concern that, you know, the same thing could happen over Christmas. And also, you know, Christmas isn't just a holiday in America, it's a holiday all over the world. And so the impact, it'll be beyond just America, it could be international. You know, there was a lot of attempts to stress the dangers here, but, you know, obviously many people still decided to go ahead. They're going to take steps to change that messaging on the next uh, on this next round. So things that they saw, big takeaways they saw, obviously we saw a lot of testing sites get overwhelmed. You know, people wanted to get those tests right before they met with family, kind of as that badge. I'm clean and clear right there. The airport travel, right. which you mentioned, tons of people, they weren't ready for the huge crowds to properly social distance them. And then the other big thing is that messaging that we've been talking about. So let's talk about that messaging specifically. What are they going to do to change the messaging? Because what they were seeing is that, you know, some of this fear-based messaging didn't work. There was a couple of local health 
departments in certain states and cities that said, hey, if you're going to meet with grandma this time, you might be at her funeral next. So there was a lot of really dire messaging before, and they don't know if that's the way to do it this time around. What we were being told by some experts in this type of thing is that maybe admonishing people doesn't work. Or maybe if you tell that to them for Thanksgiving, maybe by Christmas, the shock of that message kind of wears off. So they said that maybe a more effective strategy would be if you try to tell people like the stories of how people are being impacted by the virus. If maybe members of a community are the ones trying to get that across versus the experts saying it, that kind of thing maybe would see better results the next time around. Have the locals speak up. It might be somebody that you recognize and you can take it a little more to heart. The other thing is that you mentioned in the article, sticking with a unified message if you can. The health experts, our local leaders are telling us stay home. And one example specifically was Denver Mayor Michael Hancock said, hey, don't travel But he was doing this as he was on his way to Mississippi to celebrate Thanksgiving with his family. And this mixed message really doesn't work in Los Angeles. We're doing closures of restaurants right now, outdoor dining and indoor dining. And right before that was set to take effect, one of the local health experts was caught at an outdoor dining area. You know, so it's kind of this mixed messaging doesn't work. People don't like to see that. They just kind of feel like, well, if the experts, you know, if the politicians aren't going to follow this guidance, then why should I have to? And the Denver mayor, you know, that's one example of a case, like you mentioned, where somebody said one thing, but then did something different. And I think I saw another example came out today with the San Jose mayor, you know, having gathered in like a multifamily holiday celebration. So yeah, it it makes it a little bit harder to get people to follow the recommendations if you appear to be acting differently yourself. And testing, as we mentioned at the beginning too, testing sites were overwhelmed by this. It's important to get tested. Can't diminish that enough, but these testing sites need to ramp up their capacity for it at least. And people that are getting tested need to know that that's not the free pass. You can get infected or be contagious anytime before or right after you get a negative test. So that's also important to keep in mind. It really just means that, you know, at that moment in time, you know, you weren't showing up as infected. So like you said, you can't really take it as a free pass to think that I tested negative today. So it's safe for me to go do whatever I want free and clear for like the next week or whatever. And so the experts we spoke to said that it's important that people understand that, that the public understand that. I like the way you put it in the article. You know, a lot of people that did go out and do it for Thanksgiving might have felt like a party goer coming out of a big weekend, feeling a bit hungover, perhaps a tinge of regret. I spoke to a few people that did gather with family and whatnot. They kind of had that sense. You know, they weren't sure. The uneasiness was definitely with them. You know, I I just hope we don't get really bad numbers from Thanksgiving first. But you know people are going to still congregate for Christmas and New Year. So just heed a lot of the warnings and be very careful with all of this stuff. Brittany Shamus, reporter at The Washington Post, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The General Assembly cannot change or overturn the electors in this state if they are elected by the popular vote on the proper day for a presidential election. So that proper day happened. Uh, That vote has been certified twice now. Joining us now is Amy Gardner national political reporter at the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Amy. Happy to be here. 
Wanted to talk about Georgia right now. In-person early voting began on Monday. This is for the special election, the Senate runoff. We have two seats open right there that uh, people are voting on. It's going to be a very important one. This is, will kind of determine really who controls the Senate. And runoff elections typically see drops in voter participation. So this is going to be uh, really, really important to see how it all rolls out. But beyond that, President Trump has had this big fight going on with the governor there of Georgia, Brian Kemp. It's been uh, laid out all publicly on Twitter, in rallies. And just uh, this feud that they have going on after Trump lost the state has been pretty crazy. So, Amy, tell us a little bit about what's going on in Georgia. Sure. Well, I, you're right. This, these two Senate races are hugely important. Uh, it, they, they will determine which party controls the Senate and whether President-elect Biden has you know, the ability to pass legislation without dealing with Mitch McConnell and, the, and a Republican majority to block him when they see fit. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the feud between uh, President Trump and Governor Brian Kemp is very much intertwined with the fate of those two Senate seats. Trump is very angry that he lost Georgia. It's the most conservative state that he lost. A couple of Republican consultants and officials and strategist types in Georgia told me in reporting out this story that they think that he's embarrassed that he lost Georgia. Uh, the first Republican to do so in a really long time and looking for someone to blame. And that's certainly a uh, an M.O. that we've seen before in President Trump. He has admitted it quite openly that he's a terrible loser, doesn't like to lose and has shown us with his words and deeds that he does lash out at other people when he's angry. And so he's been going after Brian Kemp since the election and since it was clear that Joe Biden had won Georgia by a, a small margin of only about 12,000 votes. Uh, and 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 being very angry with him for not sufficiently um, talking about the uh, allegations of fraud that Trump has been talking about, even though there's no evidence that uh, fraud uh, sort of um, was happening in any widespread way in big enough numbers to affect the outcome in Georgia. And he was angry at him for ultimately certifying the result after the Secretary of State's office did so, even though that is something that Governor Kemp doesn't really have much power over. It's a ceremonial signature, basically, that he's right. required to put on a piece of paper once the Secretary of State's office has certified the result. There's a couple other things that he's been angry about in the past. He was mad that Kemp chose Kelly Loeffler to fill the unexpired term of Johnny Isaacson when he stepped away a year ago. Yeah, exactly. That was Sorry. kind of an interesting uh, situation this was last year when Brian Kemp brought Loeffler to President Trump just to, as an introduction, say, hey, this is who I'm choosing. And President Trump took it as a slight almost that he wasn't consulted in who to choose. He said, well, if you're already coming here, why are you wasting my time pretty much? Right. And he didn't think Kelly Loeffler was a very good candidate. He didn't particularly like her. And he felt as though Kemp owed him a little more fealty. He had endorsed Brian Kemp um, in his own primary for governor in uh, 2018 and didn't feel as though Kemp was, Kemp was sufficiently grateful for that. Um, and then he was also angry at, at Kemp after Kemp reopened the Georgia economy um, more dramatically than any other state had done so far back in April, uh, you know, after an initial couple of weeks of COVID restrictions. Um, and it just feels like they're really kind of miscommunicating with each other and Trump doesn't really feel the responsibility to work on 
you know, how he communicates with people. He's the president, makes that very clear. He expects other people to do what he wants and not the other way around. And Governor Kemp seems to have made a decision that he was going to do what he felt he had to do as governor. Uh, And when it came to the election uh, in Georgia, it's a case in point. Um, The other thing that President Trump asked Kemp to do is to order Brad Raffensperger, the secretary of state, to conduct an audit of all the signatures on the absentee ballots, which Kemp doesn't have the power to do, even though he had called on Raffensperger to conduct that audit. And he also called on Kemp to call in a special session of the state legislature to basically overturn the results of the election. And Kemp's lawyers told him, you can't do that. You have to give a reason when you call a special session. And it has to be a legally defensible reason. And there is no legally defensible thing that the legislature can do to overturn the results of this election. They can't change the state's election laws after the fact to apply retroactively to this election. That would be unconstitutional and would be immediately challenged in court. And you'd be the one holding the bag for having called them in to do that work. So he didn't do it on the advice of his lawyers. And Trump is mad at him about that. He's in a box. He's a Trump supporter. He's been one of the most loyal Republicans in the country. And it's like he can't win. And that's one of the important points there. Throughout leading up to the election, Brian Kemp held rallies, all that stuff very much was a support of the president. But the election came and it happened. And he has confidence in the way they conducted the elections there. He has confidence in Raffensperger, who, you know, has also said there's no fraud going on. So what does he do just because he supports the president invalidate everything and say, well, we made a mess? You know, I mean, he's not going to do that. Also, he's just kicking himself in the foot on that if he goes on that approach. Well, you know, the other really interesting um, piece of all of this is that Kemp and Raffensperger, to a degree as well, are actually in positions of power to take steps that could have, or they were, that could have helped President Trump. I mean, Raffensperger leads an office of investigators who look into fraud. He could have ginned something up and launched investigations and parroted President Trump's rhetoric and put some of his own agency behind that rhetoric. Kemp could have declined to sign the uh, the, the certification, and he didn't. Um, uh, and and if you look around at a lot of the other Republicans out in the country who are standing by the president right now, I haven't seen very many others who are also in positions of power actually taking steps that could be legally indefensible to to back the president. And so in some respects, it's unfortunate for Republicans that Georgia had a Republican governor, because in states like Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin, you had Republican legislatures who could say that they believed that there were fraud, there was fraud and who could sort of make these rhetorical um, kind of uh, allegiance like statements, but they they knew that a Democratic governor in those three states was not going to let them actually go anywhere with that. And that was not the case in Georgia. Republican governor, the buck stopped with him, and he had to decide what to do. And it's really interesting to ask the question of what some of these other Republicans would or will do when it comes time to actually take action. Like if there is a challenge to the Electoral College vote on January 6th in the Congress, you wonder who would actually do that, who would actually stand up and say, 
I challenge these electoral results, despite the fact that there's zero evidence that there's any legal justification for doing so. Tell me a little bit about how Stacey Abrams figures into all of this, because Brian Kemp in 2018 narrowly defeated her for the governorship. Raffensperger in his statements, you know, on why Trump has lost the election, you know, he says it's because of changing demographics. And right now we know that she's helping the ramp up for the runoff election, trying to get as many Democrats to turn out as possible. How does she fit into all this? Because the president himself also in tweets said, you know, Republicans are just scared of Stacey Abrams as well. Yeah, it's really interesting that he's pointing that out because the Republicans that I speak to in Georgia don't think that's a particularly helpful message for their party and for their party's chances in Georgia, whether it's in the runoff elections or in the gubernatorial race in 2022, when a lot of folks expect there to potentially be a rematch between Kemp and Abrams. Um, Of course, that depends on President Trump not following up on his promise to support a primary challenger to Kemp because he's so angry at him. So it's really interesting. Stacey Abrams is sort of credited as being one of the leaders, if not the leader, of the Democratic effort to build up a field operation in Georgia. As you say, she lost very narrowly to Kemp in 2018, and that was the first time a a Democrat had come that close in quite a while. She was credited with really bringing out what she calls the new majority of Georgia uh, voters of color, not just black voters, but Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, Native Americans, and uh, and really built this formidable machine. And that machine was also credited with Joe Biden's victory in Georgia. And so it's also interesting to see how much Brian Kemp has tried to stay or did try to stay out of the debate over voter fraud versus voter suppression since he won that election. Right. That was a huge issue when they were running. Huge. He was defined by it. She very successfully defined him as someone who had been guilty of voter suppression, voter roll purges, rule changes that that were that had a greater impact on communities of color than other voting communities. Um, And so and, and he saw that that had been a winning argument for her, very nearly a winning argument. And it could become a winning argument for her again in 2022. And so he stayed away from the issue. He did not want to be the voter suppression governor. Then this thing lands in his lap like a, you know, two-ton bomb, and he, he can't get away from it. And so I think in a lot of ways, the, the, the civil war that Trump has sort of provoked in Georgia, where he's forcing people to take sides, is extremely unhelpful to the Republican Party's future. You're going to see that the, now he can't get away from the, the branding of you know voter suppression right. uh, in 2022 because of this battle that we're seeing play out in Georgia now in the presidential race just a huge how big Georgia was in this election. And they're not done yet. As we said, you know, that runoff election goes all the way to January 5th. So we'll know then who controls the Senate. It's going to be tough for Democrats, but it's still possible. And as you said, Georgia's just a huge state this year. So we'll see how it all turns out. Amy Gardner, national political reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Take it easy. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. 
This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.